0: One to four of Marriage, Its Ethic and Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Marriage, Its Ethic and Religion by P.T. Forsyth. The Age's Uncreating Word the present is an age of what mr balfour in one of his books aptly calls the uncreating word old institutions are either being reconstructed in practice or they are being dissolved in thought underneath the existing practice we are in a great day of judgment in this sense at least that we are deep in the critical age and the constructive age has barely begun dogma as dogma has ceased to reign, and idealism, which ruled for a time, has lost much influence, even where it keeps its crown. Society seems to have become so stable, so unsinkable, that we feel safe to challenge all risks at full speed. We cannot believe that the essential boons of civilization will be lost, and we think we can toy with a great many of the sanctions under which they have been secured but there are some signs beginning to appear, even in the public eye, which tend to shake this confidence. It is the very central and vital things that are now flung into the crucible. Religious belief, even in the churches, becomes so fluid that many sections of the people live in chronic doubt if there is firm ground at all. Women revolt, youth revolts, Capital revolts, labor has wakened up to a sense of insurgent solidarity which threatens national dissolution. It has become possessed of a powerful social explosive, before experience or responsibility has taught it how to handle it, or bred a public spirit, as distinct from a class. And, if it is mishandled, it is of a nature, from its position and function in society, to cause not only damage but wreck. And so it is also with the central cardinal institution of natural society, marriage. In every age, of course, it has been morally violated, but it is now ethically challenged. And there are forms of the challenge more dangerous than violation, because they claim moral support. It is one thing to confess ourselves too weak or wayward to keep an ideal which we yet recognize as a law, and it is another to challenge the ideal itself. It is one thing to have to do with a man who sins but says, I know it is wrong. It is another thing to have to do with one who sins boldly in the exercise of what he believes to be a right, not to say an apostolate. And today it is the moral ideal of marriage that is challenged, and challenged by people who would not break its laws if they recognized them, but who have a mission to dissolve them what we have to do with therefore is not vice but the error that ends in vice the vice that begins less in passion than in heresy but which is perhaps even more fatal to society in the far end because it is believed to be right evil becomes our good and purity plays with perdition the traditional view of marriage is challenged by many who though they concede too much to the fickleness of passion, are in totally different category from the swarms of blue bottles that hover immune upon social garbage. It is perhaps not from such foul vice that society is in most danger. That is deadly for weak or gross individuals, but society is most affected by the people who care for purity it is in most peril therefore from decent heresy rather than palpable vice from social heresy heresy as to what constitutes purity from false theories of a subject more vital than any other to social welfare and cohesion it is not a region where theory is academic and indifferent the most serious danger is from critical idealists who would dissolve the traditional view of the sanctity of marriage under the belief that its fixity is a premium on hypocrisy and that they are exalting and purifying it. They would do so by making it more free. They have imbibed the modern tendency to reduce self-restraint. They are neither vicious nor gross, though they are sometimes recalcitrant and antisocial in temper. But they often fail in two respects. They play into the hands of the vicious because they fail to protest as they should against the exploitation of their views by people who have none of their idealism. And they fail through a lack of imagination that often goes with obsession by an idea to follow out the action of their principles and to forecast the consequences of their views when these shall have become a social creed marriage as individual social and religious the marriage question is so great that it has many aspects three might be selected in chief as it concerns the pair as it concerns society, as it concerns God. There are those who say, or who are tempted to say, that it concerns none but themselves. There are others who say it also concerns society, but no more. And there are those who think that these two views do not exhaust the situation, and that the chief factor is the reference to God and His will. In the first case, marriage is treated as a mere matter of private consent, It is justified by the mere mutual passion, which says to society, this is our business and none of yours. In the second case, it is a matter of contract under the state, because society is so much affected by it that it claims the right to be consulted in it and to give public sanction. In the third case, it is a matter of religion under the church, which brings its divine sanctification. Now, I do not think that many who are beyond the erotic stage where passion is its own guide, or the egotist where individual rights are supreme and where everything is sacrificed to liberty and nothing sacred from it. Beyond these, perhaps, not many would defend the first position. Those who claim individual freedom have always to appeal to society for protection in its enjoyment. They live securely only by a social consent. And still more. The consequences of marriage are so grave and wide for society that it never can be confined to the interests of the pair concerned. It has enormous results for the public. First in its effects on the moral personality of the parties and their contribution to the social tone and second in respect of the offspring and their social education. That is to say marriage cannot be confined to the affections of the married but it is involved in the whole ethic, welfare, and dignity of the community. That is, again, putting it in another way, the prime concern is not the liberty of the individual or the couple concerned. It is not private but social. It is the interest of the family. It is the family, not the individual, that is the unit of society, its ultimate atom or cell, so to say. And it is impossible for society to allow the view that, after mutual passion and consent, all else is but form, and therefore entirely flexible. That is not ethical at all. It is the mere aesthetic or erotic view, which unfortunately has great currency, because it is the view which lends itself to literary effect, and this is by way of being a literary age. The inference from this plea is what many draw, that the form should cease or change when the passion that sets it up ebbs or fails. This seems to mean that love has no tie, that permanent fidelity is not essential to union, which would then rest rather on the free concourse of passion or liking, and not on the relation of love with a moral nature. But no society can permanently rest on the mere freedom of its individuals or preferences. Some form, some inhibition, is part of its reality, however it may vary. It is the merest abstraction to sever them and declare that either is indifferent. In the same way people say, in a kindred region, if I have the religious or the Christian spirit, it does not matter in what form of belief that is cast. But no religious society could live on such atomism. Certainly a great human society like the church could not. The form of belief, with good men, may vary for different ages, but it is never indifferent. A common belief is variable, but essential. And so with the other great human society of the state, it also has its practical dogmas. It could not allow people who use its advantages and claim its pale to say, your forms are entirely at the mercy of our fancy. It is only when marriage passes beyond mere consent that it becomes an ethical matter. Only then is it moralized. It becomes a matter of the family, of kinship, and therefore of the state. Indeed, it becomes a matter of human society at large, which must always bar unions that do not conform to the conditions of its welfare and wait on its consent. Marriage is a social act. The social form is not indifferent, it is part of the substance, it is a piece of social morality, i.e. of social existence. It is bound up with the safety, honour and welfare of society. But it is to be hoped we shall never come to mere civil marriage, as if it only concerned society. If anything is ethical on that universal scale, it has already begun to be more than ethical. On that wide scale and on such an intimate subject, it becomes also deep and sacred. It becomes religious. Even if you own no more than the religion of humanity, that is so. You cannot treat human society as one whole without your ethic becoming religious. Even the positivists, since they worship humanity, treat marriage in their religious ritual as a sacrament. And I do not wonder that the Roman church treats it so. I do not agree with that church in so doing, for reasons which would be misplaced here. All I do say is that the more one ponders the solemn implicates and slow effects of marriage, moral and spiritual, the more one feels that it has something sacramental in its nature. It may be less than a church sacrament, but it is a moral. It is certainly more than a contract. We all know that there are marriages whose slow effect is to deepen and enrich religion on both sides, while on the other hand there are cases where the effect has been, on one of the parties at least, to weaken or to quench the religion in which they began. If not a sacrament, it is a means of grace, and like every means of grace it sweetens or hardens according as it is used at any rate the ethical and social view of marriage is quite inadequate even if humanity be all we have in view how much more when we have in view the god of humanity it calls for more than social sanction it calls for divine sanctification if life do so at all if it means so much for the soul and for society that is really because it belongs to the kingdom of god and to the will of the god who ordered society and its destiny if it is organic to the structure of society it is vital to the purpose of god it is a union which reflects a union deep in the eternal nature of a triune god himself hence if religion has a place in the institution of marriage its proper place is supreme wherever it has a place it has the ruling place by right It has not only to add a benignant blessing to a natural institution, but it has the right to rule it and moralise it, govern it and lift it up, as it has the right to rule every great juncture of life. Is it any use beating about the bush here, when we speak of religion, do we not at heart mean the Christian religion, as gathering up all that is best in the rest?' again i say i do not want to raise theological issues i do not ask what the exact relation of christianity is to other religions or to what is called natural religion nor in what sense it is unique i only say it is in a real relation to them and one which makes the most and best of them and reveals the working of god in them all If there is a religious view of life and of marriage, therefore it must be the Christian view, substantially and in the long run. And I will take another step. It must be substantially the view of the church, by which I do not necessarily mean what has traditionally been the view of the church, nor necessarily the view of a particular section of the church, but the whole church of confessing Christians has the only right to say what Christianity is or should be it is the company of the soul's experts that is the experience of the gospel and the spirit so by the church's view i mean the form which the church's principle may come on the whole to take when we examine in the light of an instructed faith both the gospel and the modern situation when we review all the questions raised about the ethic of the past in the presence neither of passion nor of tradition alone but of the changed social conditions and distresses, for the present challenge of marriage has largely a social cause in the conditions of the great city and its industry. And again I do not mean that the church has the right to force its law upon the state. Much of the prejudice against religion has been caused by the impression that the church, in pressing its views, is seeking to coerce the public for the sake of its own power and place. Too often it has been so, but I am sure all that is best in the churches would unite in confessing as their ruling idea that of service. If the church oppose any movement, it should only be in obedience to a trust committed to it, and in the defence of a principle put in its charge. No coercion, no lust of power. And let us escape from mawkish charity to remember that sometimes the best service you can render men is to combat their errors. Three things should be clear in this connection. 1. The church has no right absolutely to forbid the state to modify the conditions of divorce according to the expediencies of the whole practical situation. 2. The church has a right to make and keep its own marriage laws, and it ought to be in no position where it cannot do so civil marriage is compulsory but religious is optional and it need not be used by those who refuse the conditions three from the church's point of view and speaking generally the chief way to deal with the admitted evils is not legal but moral not to relax requirement but to increase power true christian faith has resources of power which obviate the need of divorce between two people confessing christ and serving him in the spirit divorce is unthinkable and neither christ nor paul contemplates it the christian view of marriage if it were said by any that religion and the church have little to do with marriage it is impossible to say that christ had little to do with it it would be nearer historic truth to say that the subject almost fascinated him he was not a social reformer nor a political liberator though nothing has been such a power in both directions as his gospel and yet he had very much to say of a most positive kind about the keystone of society marriage he said it so strongly and positively that most people have thought he was actually legislating about it but he was not a legislator either he was not engrossed with its effect and value for natural society as is shown by the fact that when he speaks of its permanence or its breach he says nothing in the interest of the children which is so vital to the social aspect of the case he thinks of it theologically not sociologically as an expression of the will of god for his kingdom and not as a piece of natural social ethic for the kingdom of god is not a thing not a particular social fabric but a certain common relation to him If he had thought of it chiefly as a piece of general ethic, he would have been much more specific about it, considering the immense stress he laid upon it. But he treats it only in relation to the Jewish forms of it that were before him and his public. If Jesus was a legislator, Christianity must be monkery or Tolstoyism. A great part of the suspicion and hatred towards his church has arisen from its mistake in thinking that his principle for his ideal kingdom was legislation for general society. But he was not legislating even for his church, which is not identical with the kingdom any more than with natural society, and which did not yet exist. And if he was not legislating, the church has much freedom in applying his great principles to a particular age and stage but his ideal principle is very clear. He was arrested upon the idea of marriage, and upon what I have called the sacramental significance of it. He was a legatee of the great spiritual tradition of his nation, which, with great tenderness often, regarded the national relation to God as wedlock, and treated public apostasy as adultery. Marriage was the point where God most closely touched man so far as social ordinances were concerned, just as Christ himself was the point so far as the soul was concerned. We see then how little wonderful it is when Paul treats Christian marriage as the great natural and social symbol of Christ. Paul's ideal attitude was but the continuation of Christ's own, and it was slowly revolutionary for the world's idea of marriage. I cannot go into much detail as to the Christian view of marriage, nor at all into its spiritual symbolism of Christ's relation to his Church. I am more concerned with the Christian ethic of it as an institution for men than with its spiritual suggestiveness in our relation to God. It must be clear that the Church, as the trustee of the Gospel, is bound always to have much to say and especially to its own members on the subject and to repudiate its every interference as a piece of ecclesiastical intrusion is mere journalese i will only mention the chief points of the christian position one christian marriage is monogamy polygamy in principle and as an institution is licentious I say nothing of practice in particular cases there is of course the ready remark that in the old testament polygamy was permitted and practised even to the extent that it was not wholly extirpated in christ's time and the one and final reply is this the entire drift and you might almost say a leading purpose of the bible history is to show that When we read the cases in the context of the whole, its consequences are not only unsocial, but disastrous and tragic. It is always shown by the event, though the Bible does not lecture about it, to be a family bane, the source of sin, crime and ruin. Polygamy is fatal to moral development, family life and social peace. It is semi-barbaric. It means the slavery of women, and it has its ground either rudely as legalizing lust or crudely as providing population. One need hardly discuss polygamy in this country except for the fact that it comes back upon us in another form, the successive instead of the simultaneous form of temporary marriage, of which more anon. The plea is urged sometimes that polygamy in any kind is the natural thing, and that a monogamous restriction is unnatural and artificial and unreal. But there are no words in which we need more education than those that deal with the natural or the real. What do you mean by natural? Do you mean instinctive and primitive, or evolutionary and civilized? Have you grasped the meaning of evolution for nature? If you mean by natural what is the original form, of course that is polygamy, not to say promiscuity. But to go back to the brute is not to be natural. The doctrine of evolution has knocked on the head those social theories which began by imagining an aboriginal state of nature and went on striving back to it, either as it was in Eden or anywhere else. The natural is what corresponds with the line and tendency of evolution, of civilization the unnatural is what thwarts that process and the whole natural history of society has been the process of evolution by a costly struggle from conditions polygamous to conditions monogamous and we may take it as a social dogma that the welfare of any community is bound up essentially with the canonization of monogamous marriage monogamy is the index of civilization That is the true nature of society, the nature which through all its history has been working to the top, where civilization through Christianity has now fixed it. Monogamy is not a mere social convention. Even if it were but that, it would still be of the greatest value and authority. It represents the upward struggle of millenniums in the civilization of the race, a struggle so great and stubborn that it is not at an end yet even in our Western civilization. Prostitution is the lees and dregs of polygamy, but monogamy is more than a social achievement. It rests on a deep and commanding moral base. The material side of love is real enough, it is imperious enough, and it has, of course, its proper place and sacramental value for true love but that place and value is one which must retire more and more to the rear as love grows more and more love by the very course of nature it does in age when true love is once set alight the flame or the beauty may go out that kindled it the material base is more and more mastered by the moral and spiritual fellowship by the real communion of heart and soul which is the great personal purpose of marriage The purpose of love's union is the mutual and practical culture of character in all fine and intimate moral growth. Without this, the sensuous side, in any personality which rises above the brutes by having a moral nature and destiny, is mere sin. What follows? Surely this, that love may not be spent on the opposite sex as a sex. That would justify the widest and wildest license. It can only be morally spent on a single personality. For each, the other is the sex in this regard. Only so is moral culture by its means possible. Multitude makes soul communion and moral interaction impossible. It means debasement. And the ethic which sings of a Don Juan as being false to every woman but always true to love is literary blackguardism. The same principle prescribes also the lifelong permanence of marriage. All relations, which are but temporary in their nature, defy, in various degrees, the principle that passion is there for the uses and ideals of the moral soul. And such relations are a crime against an ideal humanity no less than a holy God." a complete humanity rests on men and women who do not simply fuse in passion but who grow into each other in sacrifice as only souls can and that again rests on a moral equality of the sexes which is possible only if they are not identical but complementary the rights are equal but not the same man and wife are one flesh as one spiritual personality one not by an outward bond or promise merely, but by each being the other's inner complement, they interpenetrate, they make up a joint personality by the harmony of an indelible psychic difference. And this dual or complex personality, the family idea, is the base of the corporate unity of society, and it is the point of attachment for those great spiritual analogies which connect Christ so intimately with a human society in the church. The Christian view of marriage continued. 2. Christian marriage is indissoluble. Here the Christian law, insofar as it is a law, and insofar as the ideal society of Christ is concerned, is absolute. I more than doubt if the exception embedded in Christ's words about divorce is genuine. The whole tone of the Sermon on the Mount is absolute and does not deal in exceptions. It does not touch the region of casuistry. The exception is mentioned only in Matthew and, moreover, as Christ was speaking of his ideal kingdom, he could not think of pornia there and therefore could not accept it. The point is a difficult one, however, and if we took a text alone to settle the question, we could not be dogmatic. We could not dogmatize morally, as society does about marriage, on the basis of a fine point of criticism. If, however, infidelity were a ground for divorce it is not the only ground st paul allows it for malicious desertion by a pagan spouse and it should for christians be equally a ground on both sides having regard to the spiritual equality secured by christ for the woman on grounds which are at the mercy of no texts That, of course, is not in Christ's express teaching, which, here as elsewhere, moves formally in the lines of oriental jurisprudence or custom and does not speak of the woman's rights. But it is in Christ's principle and gospel. The case of slavery is analogous. The New Testament does not destroy it, but its gospel does. So Christ did not say the oriental position of the woman in marriage was slavery, but he destroyed it and another thing the more you make marriage indissoluble the more you must press the christian duty of forgiveness for lapse and of restoration unless the sin become a habit then separation whether divorce or not but the chief practical ground for the indissolubility of marriage among the people of christ is this that christianity opens moral resources which enable men and women to overcome the difficulties and disillusions of married life The church's law of divorce ought to be more exigent than the state's, because the church provides more resources for averting it. And it can never be but an extreme step when all else has failed. For even in the fading of young passion, even amid some disillusion, the relation ripens to become a very intimate aspect of Christian love. Christianity provides for its true disciples a resource whereby Christian love so schools the character and temper that when the romance is gone that played too great a part, a kindly life is possible still, in which indeed a new and deeper affection may grow up. That happens in nature for the children's sake, where there are no children it should happen in grace for Christ's sake. And if the growth of wickedness on one side went so far that there was nothing but separation for it, then the same spiritual resource is at our disposal, if we will, to make solitude tolerable, however hard. In a truly Christian church, there would be means of much alleviating the solitude. The precepts of Christ, especially in the sermon, were for those who had such resources, especially in himself. And they were not for those who stood no higher than the moral plane of the public or the state. The church, therefore, cannot be so lax here as the state. Moses, the statesman, permitted divorce because of the hardness of the public heart. That phrase does not mean heartlessness, nor what we mean by hardness, i.e. brutality of feeling, nor overt hostility to God and his rule. That was not Israel's case. It meant moral backwardness an inferior stage of moral culture. In this respect, what is possible to a constitutional state, where law represents the moral average and not the moral aristocracy, is always behind the principle of the spiritual society. So long as natural egoism and self-pleasing is unbroken, the indissolubility of marriage cannot be carried out. Burdens greater than the bearing power make ruin the absolute indissolubility of marriage is a principle only in the region of christian obedience and christian power christian ethic is not possible without a common christian faith and for such faith there is no other ethic indissolubility is only the principle of the society whose existence is obedience to christ and of that society moreover in the ideal and exigent stage in which christ always saw it as in children he beheld their angel and destiny ever before the Father's face. The ethic of the Church must always seem exacting to the ethic of the State, and the Church must keep its ideal clear, if it is to educate the State in such matters, even at the cost of seeming to be somewhat stiff. The State must be popular, the Church need not, and often must not. The standard of the State is not the standard of the Church, and neither part has the right to force its standard directly on the other. The church certainly ought to be in no position which compels it to accept the lower standard of the courts, and of course it ought in all circumstances to refuse to marry again the offender of a divorced pair. But I shall be asked about the treatment of the injured party in the case. That makes a great difficulty from the church's point of view. Christ says nothing about the injured party any more than he does about the children, which shows that he was not legislating but illustrating a moral ideal. He does not say, it is my will that marriage in my kingdom should be indissoluble. He says that the spiritual conditions of his ideal kingdom are such that the dissolution of marriage is never called for. The solvent influences are either not there, or if they arise, they are submerged and transmuted by Christian love. The conditions of divorce do not exist in his kingdom. He was not legislating, as I insist. No legislator could ignore such large factors in the case as the children especially. And the church found it could not as soon as it began to legislate on the family very early in its career. As Christ himself taught once from a child, so the children became his means of teaching the church what marriage should be in practice the interests of the children implied much about the parents and their marriage and they corrected much in the conception of marriage where isolated and literalized dicta misled certain passages of paul for instance make such correction in the interests of the children the casuistry of the church had to both keep and modify the absoluteness of christ's ideal and moreover all the new testament regulations were conceived under the influence of the expected and near parousia when all existing relations should be dissolved considering further that christ's words referred only to arbitrary dismissal by the man and not to the solemn decision of a court of justice which did not exist for such cases they should no more be applied to that decision than swear not applies to oaths in court or thou shalt not kill to judicial executions we have three grades of moral attainment the state the church and the kingdom of god and what christ had in view was the kingdom and the ideal kingdom which in both state and church was but in the making it was only in the ideal kingdom or under such individual relation to him as should one day be universal in the kingdom that the spiritual conditions were present which made marriage absolutely permanent till it was absorbed in the divine purpose i should therefore find it very hard to refuse as a minister to remarry the innocent party and i should find one line of guidance in another part of christ's teaching a second marriage after the death of the other partner is not forbidden either by christ or the apostles or the church what christ says about the relations of the married in the other world seems to refer not to the continuance but only to the exclusiveness of the relation that he taught ceased though all relation did not the exclusiveness of the relation ceased and that is what infidelity destroys what is destroyed by infidelity is that which is also destroyed by death the exclusiveness the relation itself could only be totally destroyed by complete oblivion which is impossible in either case if moral growth is to go on in another life at all hence if the second marriage of the survivor is lawful after death it is similarly lawful to the moral survivor after the other's death by infidelity and divorce could the church recognize a civil divorce for other reasons than infidelity say for incompatibility on the whole no But the difficulty is immense, having regard to the fact that there is no sharp line that man can draw between church and world, and that in all the churches there are multitudes on the lower level which must be treated with some reference to its moral power. For the ideal church, where all are in complete relation with Christ and filled with the Spirit, marriage of course is indissoluble. Divorce is always a confession of defective Christianity. But we are not at that high stage the nation certainly is not as we have had to recognize but the church also is not the actual church is not the church is not yet the kingdom the hardness of heart the moral backwardness is not confined to a churchless public and it is mere purism to act as if it were the whole church like the christian personality itself is but being made and the same is true of the ideal marriage even within the church within the church we have to deal with moral conditions far short of the ideal but certain consummation of the kingdom of god which i have said and not any actual church was in christ's eye as he spoke and the steps to reach it at each growing stage were at the discretion of the spirit which guides the church in the wisest way to that end perfect christian marriages may be few but they are prophetic and what is required at any stage is that nothing be done to surrender the ideal principle, and everything which on the whole promotes it. That cannot always be done by a non-possumus. Within the Christian pale there are many degrees of spiritual attainment and moral culture, and what is called for is not an iron law which is not congenial to any idealism or any nurture, but a principle which with a changeless flexibility has in itself the power also to educate men up to itself it has to be opportunist in order to make itself in the end absolute so long as it is educative preserves its identity in its condescension and does not vanish in mere opportunism i speak of another than a mere tactical opportunism i mean the opportunism of sympathy which goes lovingly down not to stay down but to lift up the opportunism in which christ emptied and humbled himself in the incarnation the ideal principle rears the ideal community and issues from its ideal head Paul did not feel prevented in dealing with his infant churches from meeting the actual situation in a casuist way, in doing which he allows a freedom that Christ was not called on expressly to name, though Paul also spoke about marriage, the church, and Christ, things so lofty as we find in Ephesians. He had to deal with actual cases, with what would now be called mixed marriages between a Christian and a pagan, and he allows deliberate desertion to be a ground of freedom there, though he did not as between two Christians. Paul had to legislate for the church as Christ had not, for special cases in it at least. And he uses the flexibility of the spirit and not the stiffness of the letter. He was not preaching subspecie eternitatis, but acting as a casuist, episcopally and not apostolically. And so the church at every historic stage must act, spiritually, flexibly, justly, with no infallibility in the application, but only in the principle. Today, also, the church has to decide how to apply Christ's principle in a Pauline way. It has to decide, the pastor may be any day called to decide, if he will marry the innocent and suffering party of a divorced pair, when the conduct of the other has put him outside the Christian pale, and shown him to be a pagan, and worse, an apostate. And I am bound to say, so far as my judgment goes, that while I am not, of course, bound to marry anybody, and am free to be guided by the circumstances of particular cases after due inquiry, I do not feel that, as a minister of the church, I am prohibited from complying with the request. I nonetheless respect the scruples of those who feel they are forbidden. In any case, divorce is an extreme, a confession of failure, and everything possible must first have been tried the one thing is that the church should only make such concessions as keep its ideal clear and let it act slowly on the public every concession has to be in the final interest of the christian ideal and not merely of the public convenience and the question is whether the only means of doing so is for the church to set its face against divorce in all circumstances or whether the witness can be faithfully borne amidst a certain degree of practical flexibility. The answer differentiates two great conceptions of the church. One thing is certain, the church could not agree to recognize divorce by consent. That would be allowing the parties to be judges in their own case. And it would practically introduce temporary marriage and reduce it to concubinage. To that point I must return. On the whole, probably, the Church should stiffen the ideal as the State relaxes practice in this matter of divorce. It is quite possible that good utilitarian reasons should be shown for some careful extension of legal divorce, that is, for the public and for Parliament at their own moral level. But every such step confesses that we are, protanto, not a Christian nation and the church must be free to live by her own lord, her own light, and her own principles in the matter. There is a difficulty in the way of state relaxation, which may feel, and which has been pressed on me by an eminent prelate. We have raised the state to a certain approximation to the Christian moral ideal. Are we to allow it, even to encourage it, to go back by extending facilities for divorce? The answer is twofold. First, that the state may have been led to legislate by church ideals ahead of the moral resources with which the church has supplied it, and therefore the present law may do more harm in causing illicit unions than it would do in dissolving the licit. The retreat would be strategic. Or second, if the law was not ahead of the moral sense of the voters of its day, society has gone back. Our moral education has not kept pace with the growth of civilization and the law is inadequate to the moral conditions that prevail now. You can keep down the number of divorces, but perhaps at the cost of increasing married misery and demoralization, to the great damage of family and society. Especially we have changed in this respect that we can no longer treat Christ's precepts as imperious social legislation for the public nor even as legislation for a church, which did not then exist, but they must be regarded as guidance for those who fulfilled their conditions by such a personal relation to him as makes a true church. All men cannot receive this saying, only those to whom it is given, and given them not merely by nature, but by the Holy Spirit's effect in their spiritual power." In all this, I feel how much easier it would be to dogmatize on a word of Christ's than to apply the changeless principle of his gospel with his wisdom to the actual moral situation of each hour. End of chapters 1 to 4